Hi, this is James Jokum, host of Webcomics Reviews and Interviews. Today, we're looking at theme and conflict. So sit back, relax, and let the Geek Fest begin. As a writer, you're also always looking for those really cool little tricks that actually help your writing. You know, stuff that gives you a little bit more solidity to it, and at the same time can actually help you pass any kind of problems that develop later on. Well, in a lot of weird ways, that's where the scene comes in. For our purposes, the theme is essentially just the message of the piece. That is, what you're trying to actually say. It doesn't matter if you're trying to explore the big themes like good versus evil, you know, society good or bad, or if you're trying to look at something small like the power of a child's love or, you know, the power of a good home-cooked meal. The bottom line is, is that you need to figure out some sort of theme to explore. The obvious advantage to you as a writer is that, well, first off, it's going to make your writing a lot stronger. That is because you've got something you can attach all your various elements onto and use each one of those elements to explore the theme. That helps as a nice little unifying force there. Second, it adds a really nice solid layer to your, another solid extra dimension to your writing. That is, you're not just simply putting words on paper and hoping they stick. They actually have a little bit of added force to them. I mean, at that point, you've gone from being this cute little fluffy dessert to actually being a full-blown steak. Or eggplant, you know, depending on your dietary choices. But, you know, you've just got something really cool there, something really solid. Something people can actually chew on. The other advantage is that you, and the relatively cool one, is it gives you a way to deal with writer's block. If the theme is working, at that point you just have to figure out ways to build on the theme. So, you know, you can go back, figure out which elements you need to work on to build up, to build, make the theme stronger. Or, you can go back and decide the theme isn't working, and just totally thrash it. Just get rid of it completely. And go with something different. If you got to see that there's another theme that's building. And part of the writer's block is that you've got this conflict between the new theme and the old theme. Well obviously get rid of the old theme. Yeah, sometimes it's that simple. And here's the cool part. While you're actually doing the setting up the writing. Is where you actually want to look and see if you can actually build the theme out pretty well. You know, that's the advantage of having the preliminary stages. If you get rid of something and you don't have to tell anybody else about it, or if you change something and everybody else is just going to accept it later on, cool. If nothing else, you've got a cute little antidote you can tell other beginning writers or show just how good you actually are by explaining why you chose that theme in the end. So, in short, adding a theme gives you something solid. You know, gives you something you can hang everything else off of and helps you pass writer's block. So definitely considering adding some really cool themes. And while we're looking at themes, obviously the basic is good versus evil. And don't forget you can go three ways on this one. The first obviously is good guys win. You know, pretty basic. Everybody does it. That's fine. The other obviously is that you can go the other direction, which is the bad guys win. 
And let's get real, that can be fun and oh so satisfying. So you just have the bad guy win. And of course, you can go the balance route, which is the good and the bad have just gone totally wacko. And somebody needs to go in and play referee. You know, third path. There's also the society issue. With a lot of people, especially artists, we tend to see society as bad. And, well, the society is bad theme is actually not a bad one. You can explore why the society has become more of an obstruction to people's lives, or if it's gotten too corrupt, or if it's just simply isn't working. That's all fine and valid. The key here is that you're going through and exploring what's wrong with society, and either how to get rid of it and go to more of a, well, communist type situation, or how to get rid of it and build it back up into something stronger that allows for individual freedom. Of course, you can also go the other direction, which is to show that society actually does have its good points, especially when you, you know, we used to support the individual. And there are a lot of really cool things that do actually have the thing. I mean, there's the advantage of a society, for example, has a lot more money than most individuals have. By figuring out how to budget that money, you can actually advance the cause of the individual, even as you advance the cause of the society as a whole. In essence, this is a thing that basically you look at how the society and the individual can share goals and become stronger over time. Um, Destiny is another fun one. You know, on one hand, there's the you can't fight destiny. And that's fine as well. We've dealt with that all the way back to the Greeks. I mean, just look at poor Oedipus. The poor guy was told he would, you know, have sex with his mom and kill his dad. Some real Games of Thrones stuff from B.C. Greece. Ends up, he decides to run off and becomes a major athlete. Goes out for the Olympics. While he's there, his discus goes off on a rock, gets caught up by the wind, hits a spectator, ends up the spectator was his dad. Half the prophecy right there. While he's there at the Olympics, he finds this really cute older woman. They hit it off, have a few drinks, have a few tumbles. Yeah. Psychologists have been having fun with this one for quite a while. So, you know, obviously this is it. You can't fight fate. When you start looking at, say, modern version, you've got the chosen one who's supposed to be doing this thing and is caught up in trying to do, you know, no matter how that person tries to avoid getting into that fate, the universe tends to steer the person into it or other people, you know. These are, of course, the opposite, which is you can fight fate. And the real cool thing here is you've got these genetic warriors, or these people that have been trained for this particular event, or what have you, all of a sudden rebelling, and, you know, they either pass the baton on to somebody else, which is cool, or they figure out a way to avoid the situation altogether. Or even better, they just don't do it. 
you know, the whole destiny thing can be either a you can't fight it or you definitely can. We won't even talk about how this applies to time travel because, well, everybody knows that temporal mechanics gives people headaches. So, I blame Janeway on that one. But, just be aware that that is a major option. Um, karma works. You know, there is justice. It, there is justice. However you want to phrase it. I don't care if the bad guy seems to have escaped justice, but takes off the wrong minion, hits the wrong button, grabs the wrong shuttlecraft. Gets hit by a meteorite. Bottom line, the guy's taken care of, even if the bad, even if the good guys couldn't. You know, you can even have a be nice to the environment. This is a really quick version of, you know, somebody does really good things to the environment, builds up all this strong karma, comes through in all the right times. You know. Safely deactivates a nuclear plant. Frogs help him on the next advent, next adventure, or gets a wolf out of a trap. The wolf helps him out for a little while. The flop side of this, of course, is that anybody who's mean to the environment is going to be suffering some major penalties. You know, if they decide to go through and put a really nasty pesticide in their factory, for example. They could be dealing with a giant spider. Or if they decide to go out, you know, go through and massacre the local wolf pack, well, the lone remaining wolf cub ends up, you know, going after the guy's throat later on. There's a lot of really cool stuff here. And like I said, don't limit yourself to just the obvious or the big picture stuff. You know, the love of a good woman classic theme works really great with romances and of course you can flip that either way you know you can either have the you can gender bend it all you want or you know even reverse it to you know you've got some sort of issue with monogamous love so you wanted to show or you want to explore say a harem of some sort or a group of people loving each other you know the love of a child. How powerful, you know, having a child is. For parents. Um, or even just, you know, how good a home-cooked meal is. Straight up, you'd be surprised how often that shows up in good literature. So, when it comes to your theme, just decide on one. Decide on one you're comfortable with, but keep in mind you can change it later on. So, the, the cool, and like I said, the major thing here is that the readers will come in and identify with your theme if you do it well. It doesn't matter how bad it is, how much you disagree with it, or whatever. The bottom line is, is that you're trying to hit a situation where the readers will lock in on this theme and allows them to suspend disbelief later on. The one thing I don't advise doing is having two competing themes. Straight up, if you got two themes that look like they're going to be that they're going to work out well, just go ahead and marry them right off the bat. You're going to find things are going to be a lot easier for you later on. 
But if you do have two really strong competing themes, you're going to hit a fire-water situation. That is, they're going to oppose each other, and a lot of times all you're going to get out of it is steam. You're not really going to have anything that's really there. You know what I mean? As a compromise to this, you can't have sub-themes. You know? Even if you're doing, say, a We Can Fight Destiny, you can't have somebody who has problems who's going to basically end up doing what he has to do. That's fine. I just want to point out that if you're going to do a sub-theme, make sure that it's always in the background. At some point, there might be a problem because it might actually threaten to eclipse the actual theme. Well, if that happens, then you might want to go back and see if you can reorganize it so that sub what was the sub-theme is now the major theme. So, lesson here is, I mean, the major takeaway that you need to realize is that, yes, you can have a sub-theme to a major theme, but you can't have two competing themes. It just doesn't work. So keep that in mind. While we're at it, let's look, take a quick look at deconstructions. The reason I'm linking this in with the theme is because a lot of times the deconstruction allows you to... Well, the idea behind a deconstruction is you're basically taking apart some sort of genre and putting it back together. Whether or not it matches the way it's supposed to be, that's another matter. But well, to the themes, it allows you to fully ex explore the theme and have a little bit more fun with it. I'm going to bring up the Man of Steel here because one thing that Man of Steel did incredibly well was it actually deconstructed superhero. I mean, it just took the Superman mythos, tore it to bits, and just showed a lot of deficiencies within that particular genre. That's fine. I think Man of Steel would have been a lot stronger movie if they just simply renamed everybody and called it a satire. But that's me. What you're trying to do with the deconstruction, like I said, is you need to basically take all the various tropes and show either why they don't work or why they do. The classic, for example, is the superhero mask. Consider Superman versus Batman here. With Batman, actually, let me back that up. With Superman, you know, Clark Kent is the obviously, that's the core character, and Superman is merely the heroic identity. By taking on the heroic identity of Superman, it allows Clark Kent to basically be a regular human. And for the purposes of Superman, that works out really well. Batman, on the other hand, is the other extreme. That is, he's sort of that, he needs to put the mask on in order to figure out who he really is. In this case, the unmasked version, Bruce Wayne, is essentially, you know, he's the, I guess you want this situation to be the heroic identity? The catch is that that's the, whereas Batman is the real character, the real core part of the character, Bruce Wayne is just simply this add-on that, you know, allows Batman to do whatever he does. So, you know, that's just one thing with the deconstruction. I do have point out that if you, this is not something a beginning writer should take on. Yeah, you can try it, and you're more than welcome to, but in order for a deconstruction to work, you need to know the genre well. I'm not just talking general familiarity here. We're talking you need to know the ins and outs of it. You need to know why these tropes were set up in the first place. 
you know, it's a standard, you, you need to know the rules before you can break them type of deal. So, you know, if you're a new writer, put this on the back burner for a little while, please. Because new writers tend to be really horrible at deconstructions. They just don't know the rules are. And so they tend to screw up a lot of things that a more experienced writer wouldn't. That is, whereas a more experienced writer has actual reasons for hating the rules or is trying to make the rules work a different way, a new writer is just simply rebelling. And it's going to show. Trust me on this. On the other hand, if you're trying to set up a really cool negative ending, you know, the kind where everything basically falls apart at the end, a deconstruction can really work well for you. It allows you to deconstruct things, and instead of putting things back together, you just simply leave them as they are because, well, there's no reason for you to put them back together again. Um, it's also great if you're trying to analyze the genre. You want to play around with it, like a set of Lego blocks, and try to mash different colors, different types of blocks together that weren't tried before. A deconstruction can work really well for you. Obviously, this is also really great for satire. You know, where you're actually trying to make fun of some sort of greater society problem and you're using deconstruction to demonstrate that. Again, this is sort of why I pointed out that Man of Steel would have worked really great as a satire because it would have been able to show a lot of really great ways about, at the very least, deconstruct how we think of heroes, which has to happen every so often. So, again, deconstructions can work. Just make sure you know the tropes really well. Make sure you have a reason for doing it. And if you're trying to make some greater point, and deconstruction works really well. Alright. So we've handled this theme. We've handled a little bit of advanced stuff with deconstruction. Let's look at conflicts. Conflict is going to be central to your to your writing. I don't care how you define the conflict. We'll go into some of the ways you don't have to have two characters going head to head. Clue. The fifth element will be discussed. But, until we get there, there's a few things you need to keep in mind about the conflict. The best way to do a conflict isn't just simply having, you know, one person go up against another person. You need to have the two people be, have some sort of yin-yang type relationship. Either the characters are the extreme mirror image of each other, or... One of them is an exaggeration of the other. Either way works. If you want to go the simple reflection of each other, obviously if your hero is honorably and honorable and brave, the bad guy is going to be dishonorable and cowardly. If the hero is forthright and can be counted on in any situation, the bad guy is going to be more of a sneak. You know? This doesn't necessarily mean you have to have somebody who's a, you know, a criminal can't necessarily be a hero. Obviously, criminals can be. Uh, Arsene Lupin is probably one of the better examples. Um, a lot of movies today have a lot of really great villains, or more accurately, have a lot of great criminals that would be, well, 
with a little bit of exaggeration would make some great criminals or sorry, some really great villains but instead they're heroes um, look at Guardians of the Galaxy prime example you've got all these people that are murderers thieves and basically general ex-cons and they work together as a heroic team so you know there obviously is that it's just that each one of the characters in themselves have some really nice heroic qualities you know star lord tends to be honorable have great you know honors his family and friends um, Drax is basically out to revenge his family. You know, Gamora may be the world's greatest assassin, but she's trying to rebel and actually become more of a person who's trying to fight, defeat the major bad guy. Where Groot's just simply there for the most part, but even Groot tends to look at things with wild-like, wild-eyed sense of wonder. That tends to tear, you know, tends to grab everybody else and hold them together and of course Rocket is a larcenous a little sneak thief but he does it with the best of intentions honest the key is is that your heroes have to be have something positive about them and then you have to basically flip that into the villain that's one approach the other approach obviously is to have the villain be an exaggerated version of the hero if the hero is honorable, the ba- the bad guy is going to be unhonorable to it, and he's going to be you know if somebody basically does some sort of mar against his honor, he's going to kill them. He's going to be totally unyielding when it comes to whatever he's defined his honor as, whereas the good guys kind of have a little bit more of a gray area every so often. You know, or if we're looking at somebody who's in, you know, a heroic lawman. Again, the hero is going to be somebody trying to support the law, but at the same time realize that sometimes justice is well done better if you let people break the law just a little bit. You know, obviously there's some laws that can't be broken, and that sort of helps. That's going to be an interesting conflict in and of itself, but. The bad guy could be somebody who either, you know, going back to the mere reflection, is somebody who either breaks the laws whenever he possibly can, no matter what they are. The more heinous, the better. Or, is so unyielding on his concept of law that he has no problem seeing somebody who litters to jail, you know? There are those two different approaches. And each one of them will work depending on what you're kind of theme is working back. The bottom line here is you here's a fun phrase for the day. Externalized internal conflict. Yeah, let that one seep into it. Externalized internal conflict. What you're trying to basically do is show that the hero has some sort of internal conflict. You know, is he being too unyielding with the law? Is he letting too many bad guys go? Um, doesn't matter. It you know as long as he has some sort of conflict he has he's having problems with, the bad guy should be a symbol of that particular conflict. Look at King Arthur for example. 
this guy had two major internal conflicts going on. The first was he was trying to become the king of England and be the best king he possibly could be. Ergo, Muldred, his son, who was basically trying to rule with an iron fist and become this entire despot, is obviously a great counterpoint. Yeah, Muldred is the externalized internal conflict. Lancelot? Well, Arthur also had a major thing with loyalty. To what degree was he willing to defend people, especially if, and if somebody betrayed him, was that person still worthy of being defended by him? Enter Lancelot. Lancelot had a little bit of fling with uh, Guinevere, and that issue created a major rift between King Arthur and Lancelot, as well as King Arthur and Guinevere. Again, Guinevere and Lancelot, externalized internal conflict. You see how this is working? So that's part of that's part of the conflict. And of course you can go on a lot of ways. Uh, you know, Batman has a problem with rationality. So, Joker. The if Batman is having an issue with, say, you know, uh, the reason we have the Riddler is because there's a problem where intellect rules over anything else. Joker, uh, the Riddler, sorry, is pure intellect. Batman is occasionally worried that he might be too much of a uh, symbol of fear. Scarecrow. See how this is working? And it applies to other heroes as well. You know, with Black Panther, he's got to watch out for racists and people that are trying to... So you've got people like Claw. You've also got characters like Killmonger. You've also got situations where there's... And keep in mind, I'm going to point out real quick, just because you have a conflict between characters doesn't necessarily mean that the conflict has to be, oh my gosh, this is life, your death, period. In the Black Panther movie, one of the best characters, in my personal opinion, is M'Baku. You know, the... What, uh, Manape. Well, he and Black Panther have an issue between, because Black Panther represents everything that's noble and good, whereas Mbaku is, let's just say, more barbaric. Great guy, don't get me wrong. But this is the guy you need to have basically come in and tear things up every so often. And that's arguably why he's the best, one of the best characters. You know, you've got all this really hard structure, and you've got this guy who's there just to rattle everybody's cages. I mean, let's get real. And Baku, even though he expected to win at the beginning, he recognized it was either him or Black Panther, and both of them were legitimate rulers. Admittedly, Wakanda under Mbaku's rule would be radically different, to say the least. He represents an entirely different type of rulership. Not necessarily one that's bad, but not necessarily the right one for Wakanda. You see what I'm saying? But the key here is that relative to the situation is that this is not a life or death situation. I mean, T'Challa and Baku working together is a really incredible thing, but they need that conflict in order to work as characters. So you don't have to have an 
oh my gosh, these two characters are struck into a life-death battle for the ages. No. Sometimes conflicts can be something relatively simple. And it's something that needs to be ongoing. It needs because you need that tension. And yeah, we'll be covering tension a lot later. But the key here is that you don't have to have a life-threatening conflict. You know, T'Challa versus Killmonger, that's a necess- uh, conflict that needs to be life or death. T'Challa versus M'Baku, not so much. So, which I guess sort of leads to the other major point of conflict is that you need to know what the stakes are. Somewhere along the line, you need to define not only what the rules of the conflict are, but also what happens if one of the other side loses this conflict. Again, look at Black Panther. We know that um, T'Challa and Killmonger are going to have a major conflict. It's going to be life or death. One of the two of them is going to have to win. And it's going to have to win to the point where, well, one of them no longer exists. As the movie demonstrates, T'Challa is trying to do a nice honorable thing where, yeah, Wakanda is part of the world, but is a benevol- you know, a little bit more benevolent country. Whereas with Killmonger, he's just simply trying to be a despot who's in charge of, who basically rules the world. Let's get real here. You know? That's the stake. Is Wakanda going to be benevolent or a dictatorship? And a lot of other conflicts are pretty much the same. I mean, some of them are pretty obvious. Um, Dragon Ball Z, all the time. The world's going to be destroyed if Goku and company loses, or the universe, or the galaxy, or the multiverse, or whatever. The key here is, Goku loses, something big goes boom. You know? Real simple conflict. And this applies to a lot of your, a lot of the great shows. You know? I don't care if it's something as simple as trying to decide who's going to win a $25,000 prize. That's a conflict. That's stakes. And we've established rules on how to get, you know, how to obtain that 25000 You answer all these questions. You survive three rounds of cooking contests. You know. Or you're the first person to cross the finish line. That's the contest. That's the rules. And it's important for you as a writer to keep in mind that you need to enforce these rules because as soon as you stop enforcing the rules or you change the stakes, you basically kill a lot of the fun stuff going on in whatever you were trying to attempt. Um, I can't stress that enough. Once you establish the rules to a contest, you have to maintain those rules. And once you establish the stakes, you also have to keep those stakes as thing, as well, the and dog goal. Um, you know, just imagine what happened in Dragon Ball Z if instead of, you know, the cell decides right at the end of it and says, screw it, get me a lot key and I'm good to go. First off, that's going to create a lot of confusion because not everybody knows what a lackey is. But at the same time, it's also a a pretty much random change in stakes. You know, sometimes it works if you're trying to do something a little bit on the absurdist side. But if you're trying to do something a little bit more serious, 
you've just killed all the tension you've been building through the use of the conflict. And then you've also betrayed the reader. And you never want to betray the reader. Once that happens, you lose all credibility. You know, you're, they don't, all of a sudden this really cool little belief you're suspending goes pop. And the reader falls down. And it's going to have major problems getting back into the story. I, you see it in TV all the time. You know, the people, the writers set up this really cool conflict, set up the rules for the conflict, set up the stakes, and then decide to change it, change it just because it, you know, they wanted to change it. You know, plot twist. Seriously. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan. Prime example. Look at signs. You know? Actually, let's go back even further. Let's go back to War of the Worlds. Really great story. Really great suspension. And then they killed it with a basic Deus Ex Machina. You know? The aliens catch a cold and die. Seriously? So, once you've established the stakes, you know, don't change them. If you're going to change them, now, here's the part part. You can change them, but in order to change them, you have to basically backtrack a little bit throughout the story. That is, once you've established that you as the writer want to change the stakes later on, you have to give a lot of signals that the stakes are, in fact, going to change. If you've got two characters that are at conflict and one of them wants to win a contest... Well, look at why they want to win the contest and establish why they want to win the contest. If one of them wants to, say, is there just simply to gain fame, well, at that point, he can lose the contest because he has no stakes. But he needs to gain some sort of fame and he's good to go. Or he has to, you know, secure land for his ancestors or some sort of resources in order to make his people survive. For him, the prize isn't necessarily the stakes. What's the stake is what his actual goal is. If he can do that goal, then all of a sudden, and it can actually be shown that by winning or losing a contest, he can actually obtain that goal. And you've already signaled a little bit of what's going on. You don't have to be blatant. Like, you know, he's only in this to win... 27 acres, which he can do if he gets third place. No. What you need to do is set up this is what he's in the contest for. Let that life follow. Forget about it for a little while. And then bring it back once the guy is lost. You know, you, at that point you've got a cute little plot twist that actually works. Not we're going to have aliens invade the planet to 70% water and the one thing they're up that their major villain is or the major weaknesses, water. You know? Deus Ex Machinas don't work as much as you think they do. They haven't worked. They got in the machine, you know, that really surprise twist ending that makes absolutely no sense. The unearned twist. However you want to phrase it, try to figure out 37 ways to avoid it.
And like you said, setting it up that you, you're planning to avoid it early on works. And then like you said, make sure everybody forgets about it. And you, you'll do well, really well. And where were we? Oh yeah. Fifth element. Fifth element sets you up as a standard good versus evil situation. However, I'm going to point out that the real conflict isn't Corbin Dallas and whoever the bad guys are. You know, the big bad planet of pure evil or, you know, whatever. The bad guy, the conflict is with Lilu. She needs to basically, she, when she goes through and figures out everything about humanity, and she needs to make a judgment call on whether or not humanity is going to live or die, that's your conflict. She needs to decide if all the evil that humanity has done balances out uh, the good stuff they've done. And only when she's done that can she basically become the fifth element. Yeah, I know it's a weird way of looking at it, but... Try, you know, look at all this stuff in the story. I mean, you've got all this cool stuff that's distracting, don't get me wrong. But... At the same time, you've got Lilo is experiencing humanity, figuring out how humanity works, is pointing out all the bad stuff humanity's done, and then it's her decision at the end on whether or not humanity lives or dies. You know? That's where this conflict in the fifth element is. And yeah, at that point we've done a little bit of rule changing, but let's get real. We've also set it up a couple of times throughout the story, you know, with Lilu's relationship with Corbin, with the monks. You know, that's the good part. Then you've got the one she goes through and does the info dump and looks at all the warfare and genocides and all that. And then she has two, gets a little bit of hands-on fighting. And, you know, at the end of it, she makes her choice. That to me is the actual conflict as far as the fifth element goes. So, but the important part here is, as far as what we're discussing is that you don't necessarily have a really strong bad guy. Yeah, you've got the representation of evil, but, you know, let's get real. He's just simply solidifying the conflict. He's not necessarily the actual... Per he's, you know... Obviously, he's got the stakes going on because if Lilo... How Lilo decides depends on whether or not he crashes into the plant and destroys it. But, you know... That's the stakes. And obviously, we've established the conflict is between Lilo and herself, but... Remember what I said about the externalized internal conflict? That's the big planet. If Lilu not only does it define the stakes, but that's also the source. That's also the big symbol of Lilu's internal conflict. So you can't have stakes where the bad guys and the good guys don't necessarily have to be in the same space. The extreme is if you have two chess masters going at it, you know, and in a weird, really weird way, that's what Pokemon's all about. You know, you've got these guys who send in their pawns and their pieces in to fight each other, but they themselves are never in the actual conflict. 
they might be affected by it, like the time when Ash was fighting on that one grid that basically allowed him to feel whatever pain his monster was feeling. But generally speaking, the Ash could actually lose a battle and not really have to worry about any major drawbacks to it. Sure, you got something if you won, but what did he actually suffer if he lost? You know what I mean? You can also have people that are basically trying to good guy and a bad guy that are trying to acquire as much land as possible, and the one who obviously gets the most land will win. Throughout the story, you can have a little bit of give and take. You know, one of them advances gets more land than the other. Even when they've got all the land is between the two of them, you can still have something bad happen to the bad guy's land. So he loses a lot of it, and the good guy snaps, snatches it all up. Again, that's really neat, neat little indirect combat, and you can get away with that if you set it up just right. So that is something worth considering. You don't have to have two guys engaged in a end-all-be-all sword fight at the end of the show, or at the end of the comic. You can get away with just simply, you know, the two different castles, and they're trying to figure out 37 ways to move pieces on a fort. That might end up being a little bit boring, but, you know, so be it. That is another way of dealing with the conflict. Um, the only thing to keep in mind is that the hero has to start off with less power than the villain. Otherwise, there's no... You don't really care. Call it a subdivision of the stakes, if you will. But if the hero is so badass that he can go into a situation and is guaranteed to win, there's no tension. There's no drama. There's no... Why am I reading this again? You know? This doesn't mean you can't build up the hero. You, you know, send him out on some quests, give him some experience, give him some... Teach him some skills... You know, even if he has an epiphany, the dreaded flashback sequence we're all really annoyed with. You know, the bottom line is is that somehow or another the hero starts stop, starts off at a lower power level than the villain, so there's some actual risk that the hero is taking, and eventually the hero actually managed to get to the level, if not exceeding that, of the villain. So. You can use the dreaded flashback sequence if it works. You know, you've done a little bit of hero, you know, you've done a little bit of training, not a whole lot, and then all of a sudden you have to deal with the villain, and then you show a flashback that goes back to show some of the training, and works to be an epiphany for the hero in the actual combat. That works. A straightforward flashback that is pretty much random you know instead of going back to the training you go back 47 days to where he's eating ramen and he realizes that by the way he's using his chopsticks if he can apply that to his combat maneuvers he'll win yeah that's pretty much bogus so overall so I guess we better do the quick sum up Basically establish a theme. If you establish a theme, it adds some solidity to your thing, gives the reader something to latch on to, and allows you a way to get over a uh, writer's block.
Uh, if you're going to deconstruct something, know the genre, and actually have a lot of fun with it. Um, if you're going to use it for negative endings, great. You can also use it for positive because at that point you've deconstructed it, you put it back together, and you can have everything coming back together as part of that. And it also works great for satire purposes. If you're going to have a conflict, and you're always going to have conflict, make sure that the hero starts off less powerful than the villain and has some way to accrue power. Make sure that the, there's some sort of symbolic link between the two. The villain should be, like I said, an externalized internal conflict of the heroes. And he, at that point you'll have a really great villain. You also need to have the rules of the conflict set out, and you also need to know what the stakes they're going for are. So, if that helps, great. Take what you can, leave the rest behind. So, have a good evening, I'll talk at you later.